This podcast is made possible in part by the Low Country's Indigo Books, supporting public radio and independent thinking. Ordering and more is available at 843-768-2255. Welcome to Walter Edgar's Journal. With me in the studio is Paige Kennery, who is president and CEO of Brook Green Gardens. And on the telephone is Ron Days, who is vice president for creative education at Brook Green Gardens. And we're going to be talking about Brook Green, its history, and how it has evolved over the years. So first of all, both of you, welcome to the journal. Thank you so Thank much. You. It's, a, it's a pleasure. All right. Paige, let's have a kind of a brief synopsis of how did Brook Green Gardens come about? Oh, it's really a wonderful story. It's a story about the Huntingtons, Anna and Archer Huntington, who uh, are philanthropists. Uh, She was a a well-known sculptor. Um, They lived in New York, and she had TB. So they were looking for a place where she could sculpt in a warmer climate. And they discovered the 9,000... 127 acres of Brooklyn Gardens and built a home there that they were intending to to be in the in the cooler months. Uh, she had a studio there and almost from the day they purchased they saw how unique the property was, how beautiful it was and how well her sculpture looked in the garden and they decided it needed to be a public garden. Okay. The house you're referring to is Adelaide, which is on the beach, correct? That's right. And that is still part of Brook Green's property. Uh, Brook Green leases uh, that portion for public access to the state park. But the uh, the property itself, as you know, was designed by Anna Huntington. The garden design was created in the shape of a butterfly. And she placed the original work, both hers and her friends. Um, she uh, in the Depression, you know, ni- this is 1931. Of course, everyone was struggling. The people in the region were struggling, and they were providing some incredible jobs um, that were unavailable until the Huntingtons began building. They also built schools and churches. They provided health care. There was a clinic, which people say is haunted. It's actually still uh, an office building now on the property. Uh, so they, they at that point, you know, there was dirt roads coming down to Brooklyn Gardens. So they established this place for the public that has really changed uh, over the time, time we've been there. The 9,100 acres, originally there were rice plantations, but then a group of wealthy northerners had turned it into this huge hunting preserve. But the Huntingtons did not use it that way. They wanted it to be an, a nature conservancy in, in essence. They did. That was an important part of the mission from the very beginning was a sanctuary um, for wildlife. And they, of course, um, you know, Anna sculpted from life. And that was a very important part. The flora and fauna was the focus of their original mission for the garden. For the folks who've been to, to Adelaide, here's this Spanish Moorish concoction. But the story behind that is Mr. Huntington was fascinated with Spanish culture. Yes, he's a real expert. Um, His translation of El Cid is still being used. Uh, As a Hispanic scholar, that was the focus of his life. Um, The collections of the Hispanic Society of America in New York was another museum. He used to say everywhere he put his foot down, a museum (laughs) would spring up. um, So that this was a wonderful opportunity for him to design the home of his dreams, which was, you know, that Spanish word for watchtower. And he um, created definitely a unique and very bohemian. When you're in inside the Adelaide, you, you can tour the rooms that were special to them and the way that they incorporated the their quarters and the staff quarters with the same view of the ocean. And it was the Depression, but money was not really a problem because Mr. Huntington was heir to one of the great railroad fortunes in the country. Yes, Collis Collis Huntington was uh, his adopted father, and he obviously, as a a philanthropist, had access to funding and um, focused that on the collection of art and his particular interest in Hispanic culture, but their collection of especially women artists is one of the reasons that Brook Green has the designation as a National Historic Landmark was because the breadth and depth 
of the collection of women sculptors? Well, it started off with basically Mrs. Huntington's pieces. How many pieces of art have you got there now? We have 2,500 works by 450 artists. So we've continued to collect. And now Brookgreen has such a reputation with artists from around the world, but American figurative artists. Um, We are often offered donations, particularly as people are reflecting upon their lives and collections. Sculptors will offer pieces as a donation to the garden because it's important for them to be part of America's first sculpture garden and the incredible collection that's amassed. Well, is there a process for that, or do you just take anything that somebody wants to... Well, of course you know the answer to that. We have. I, well, I just want to let, you know, having been on a number of nonprofit boards, somebody, I want to give you this wonderful piece. Uh, yes, but it doesn't really fit. Yes, we have a sculpture committee that is um, you know, the, the most renowned sculptors and art historians in the country, and they review... Uh, And we do not take everything that has been offered, but we do have an opportunity um, because of our relationship with the artists. They come to teach um, in our studio for weeks or uh, act as artists in residence. So we get to know them and they get to know Brooklyn Gardens. Well, we're we're talking about about the art collection, the sculpture collection, but really Brick Green is, is more than that, and that's where Ron Days comes in with his creative education. So, Ron, tell us what your department does. Oh, the creative education department is responsible for a wide range of age groups. Uh, school field trips come to Brook Green Gardens for programs in art, history, and nature. There are also scout programs, um, the history programs include, of course, information about Gullah Geechee culture and heritage. Uh, Brooklyn Gardens was established on four former rice plantations. So that history is on the grounds as well as the history and heritage of other indigenous uh, people who had been here before the Europeans arrived. I was curious about the indigenous people because of the Win- the Winyon Indians who tried to sail the, the Atlantic in large canoes. What evidence do you have of their occupation? Is I know you do a lot of archaeological work on the site. Have you found sites that were occupied by Native Americans? In the Low Country Change and Continuity exhibit, there are uh, displays of artifacts of Native groups, uh, indigenous groups, from the area, and they are on display, um, arrowheads and uh, broken pottery, et cetera. Yeah, I will add, we're, we're excited. One of the newest additions we have is the Rosen Galleries, which are sculpture galleries, but also history galleries. And we are able to display much more than we have in the past because we're meeting a museum standard there that we couldn't in our previous gallery space. And that was intentional because we have so many things in the collection, including some Native American artifacts that we have wanted to display, but we needed the right conditions, and now we have them. So we're looking forward to more more exhibits that are incorporating all of the parts of the history of the property. Well, I know Ron's uh, professional specialty, uh, and actually, Ron, we've known each other for about 40 years, going back to your work at ETV and then the work that you and Natalie did with Gullah Culture. Uh, Because Brook Green Gardens uh, is the site of four former rice plantations, there is archaeological evidence of the world of the enslaved not just the world of the big house. Correct. And a lot of those archaeological findings are on display along the uh, the Low Country Trail at Brook Queen, which runs parallel, or uh, as people walk it, they can um, view Main Field, which was the main rice field on Brook, Brook Green Plantation. Uh, there are Sculptures along the Low Country Trail by artist Babette Block of the enslaved African male, the enslaved African female, and the overseer, characters who helped to shape what's known today as Gullah Geechee culture and history. There are also footprints of the smokehouse and the kitchen of the overseer, as well as the slave cabin. 
with so, interpretive signage. Yeah, so you, you have the foundations or the where the chimney stack was, yeah. that kind of thing. And those sculptures of the enslaved and the overseer uh, were commissioned right there. They're very large metal pieces. Yes, they're very. They're made of stainless steel. They're cut with laser beams, so you can view nature um, throughout them. Ron, how do how do people today, when you you take them on the Low Country Trail and deal with the pre eighteen sixty world, and it was a, a world that was overwhelmingly African American, how do they react to, to that story? Well, the story on the Low Country Trail. There's an audio path, and there's a fictional story that I created about an event that occurred on Brooklyn Plantation some 200, 300 years ago. But listeners get to assess uh, the points of view about life and death from each of those sculptured figures. The interpretive program at Brook Green that uh, I have been pleased to have uh, made possible showcases the strengths of the people and also gives different perspectives about life at that time. This might be a good time for you to, to just talk a little bit about how Gullah Geechee culture developed and how it has continued down through to the present day. Well, surely. Um, Gullah people are descendants of primarily West Africans who were brought to the Carolina and Georgia colonies during the 17 and 1800s to produce cash crops. In Georgetown and Horry County, the cash crop mainly was rice. The enslaved Africans were transported from their homelands because of their skills and knowledge in rice production. And that heritage has sustained within the communities, the language, the foodways, the spirituality, beliefs, etc., there are retentions from West Africa that are realized more so in Gullah Geechee people of the coastal communities, not only of South Carolina and Georgia, but the four states that uh, comprise the Gullah Geechee Cultural Heritage Corridor and some of the interpretive programs here at Brook Queen. Uh, there's the Reign of Rice lecture series, uh, January through March, uh, to show how these continuities continue it, within the Georgetown and Ori communities as well as regionally. Uh, for years, um, I'm sure as you are aware, many who now proudly uh, call ourselves we did not use those words years ago because those were words of shame and embarrassment. And uh, with that in mind, one of the interpretive exhibits now at Brookwing Gardens is seeing her esteemed living history narratives of Georgetown, South Carolina, in which residents of the Georgetown community, Gullah Geechee residents, are talking about their history, their heritage. There is another permanent exhibit, the Gullah Geechee Gadden exhibit, and Gadden is the way that garden would be pronounced in some Gullah Geechee communities, which showcases Gullah Geechee culture as a living culture, not one solely from 300 years ago in the ways that people dress or in their beliefs, in the very language themselves. And listeners would get the Brook Green app, which is free. Uh, they can access each of the recordings, which include oral history narratives, remotely. And of course, the average tourist immediately thinks of Gullah Geechee culture. They think of sweet grass baskets, uh, one of the most visible forms of uh, that culture that has been translated down through or transmitted down rather through the years. But in, in going through this wonderful new book on Brook Green, which mm -hmm. Paige Kenry brought in to me, the waterways there, and it may have been in a discussion you and I had, or maybe with Chaz Joyner, the three of us, about the impor importance of water in terms of religious observance among the Gullah Geechee people. Yes. Many Gullah Geechee 
graveyards, African-American graveyards, are located near the water. And one reason is because uh, a belief that the spirits of the deceased would cross the water in the same ways as those who, the ancestors of those who had died had been brought across the water, where those spirits could return back to their African homelands and be at peace. There were um, numerous ways in which Gullah Geechee people and their ancestors utilized the water for sustenance, fishing, crabbing, oystering. Uh, Water was also a very important part of spiritual belief following a custom known as Sikhan legend in the wilderness or seeking religion in the wilderness uh, in which those who wished to join the church would have to dress in white. They would go out or into the woods uh, late at night, either singly or with one or two other people to have dreams that would be interpreted later um, as evidence that they had come through or found religion. Uh, for those in those circumstances, dreams about anything white, white horse, a white cat, a white person, would be uh, notated as evidence that the individual had come through, and then they would be baptized in the water, Creekshore baptisms. These kinds of uh, practices are very much related to some of the practices of West Africa, where youths would be led into the woods, where they would have to have dreams um, as evidence that they had attained manhood or womanhood, um, kinds of things done in some of the secret societies, which may have been changed when brought over to the New World. But that is a practice in Gullah Geechee communities. Charleston artist Jonathan Green has done a wonderful series describing exactly what experience that you just gave us. Right. Uh, uh, and he has an association with Brooke Green, does he not? He has visited our campus and um, had exhibits and and um, provided lectures and programs yep. for us. He's such an amazing resource and and he is an inspiration to a lot of the other artists. Ron brings in a variety of Gullah Geechee artists for, on display in our Low Country Center in changing exhibits. And then I just wanted to add, too, when we were talking about the, the cemeteries, there is an opportunity for people who come to Brookgreen to take a trekker out to see the cemeteries and be able to compare those European cemeteries with the burial practices of Gullah Geechee people. And I know a lot of people don't have that opportunity anywhere else. It's a really unique program that's provided by Brook Green. Paige and Ron, we need to pause for a moment and let our listeners know that this is Walter Edgar's Journal, and I'm talking with Ron Days and Paige Kennery about Brook Green Gardens and its various exhibits, and I would say manifestations because the mission now, Paige, is far larger than what the Huntingtons started out with. It's more than just a sculpture garden. It is. Um, Their vision originally did not include history at all. And it became evident that that needed to be officially part of our mission, which I think took place sometime in the 1980s. So interpreting both the the rice culture, as well as the Huntington's history, is a very important part of um, of our mission today, and of course, a very important part of Ron's programs for school children and our Brook Green U, which is adult education programs that have a wide variety of experiences and opportunities for people to learn more about the history of the area. Well, I believe you mentioned early on when the Huntingtons bought that property, they immediately made it basically a game preserve. But they were also interested in the flora as well as the fauna. And you have a zoo. Is that the term? It is. We call it the Low Country Zoo, but it it is a zoo. It's an accredited zoo. So that for us means that we're meeting the highest standards for animal care 
enrichment and our focus is on animal welfare. But these are animals that are native to the area. They've, for the majority of them, they've been injured or imprinted um, or bred in captivity so that they are not able to be released into the wild. So these are providing a uh, ambassador for their species, if you will, for for education on our mile-long trail that goes through native habitat. So that's, a, a again, an opportunity for us to be part of science SOLs um, as well as uh, art and history. Let's say you've got marsh tackies, you've got goats, you've got pigs, and all of those go back to animals that were introduced into North America by the Spaniards. Right. We and, and other Europeans, um, they're heritage breeds, and we do participate with conservation organizations to maintain that bloodline for those various animals. And um, the, the marsh tacky, of course, as the state horse mm-hmm. of South Carolina is an important part of our interpretation of that um, plantation era. Mm-hmm. And the use that these animals had for multiple purposes. Now, of course, um, they're very specific to the task of, um, you know, as a milk animal or a meat animal. And these animals had multi purposes. And they're also just unique. People don't have an opportunity to see some of these heritage breeds and to get up close with them as well. Well, the hogs that were introduced by the Spaniards, and I, I was familiar with that. They, they don't look like Porky Pig in the cartoons. I mean, they're a very different different breed. And I, I didn't realize goats went back to Spanish uh, introduction in the 16th century. Yes, the, the breeding, too, is something that is very popular. So there is nothing cuter than seeing, you know, four or five young kids frolicking through the exhibit. And it is a chance to draw people in to history by those animal ambassadors. Way back when, the first part of the zoo, I remember there were deer and you could pet the deer and feed the deer. Can you touch the animals now? We do not uh, offer that opportunity. Um, That's just for the animal welfare there. Many of them, because they're uh, in a sanctuary, it's because they have special dietary needs and they are come to us um, injured, for example. So we do have volunteers that walk through the garden on a daily basis with tours about um, what it's like to care for all of the animals in the collection. And people are really interested in you know, that from a, a zoo perspective and, and how we ensure that the animals are getting all of the enrichment and um, the right diets that they need. I thought that was the case, that the close interaction that somebody might have remembered from 25 years ago, modern care for, for the animals is you don't let that close interaction take place. We don't. And we have a new animal that we're going to be introducing this fall, uh, red wolves. I know you're familiar with those um, animals that used to be native to this area and now only exist in one sanctuary in the wild at Alligator River. And our close proximity there has encouraged us to have a breeding program. So our hope is that animals that we will breed will help with the conservation of that species, which is highly endangered. You've got tree wolves too, right? They're uh, uh, foxes. Foxes, excuse me. Tree foxes. Um, Yes, the gray, gray fox, our native fox, is arboreal. So you can see them relaxing in the trees in their exhibit. Well, now, see, that's something most people don't think of foxes climbing trees, but they, their claws are such that, yes, as you said, there, there are two canids mm-hmm. yes. that uh, can do that. And they are native of South Carolina, are they not? They are, um, as are the, the river otters, which are the most popular species, I think, other than our, we have a very large alligator, um, we think is at least... 50 years old. We're not sure. He has been a, a wonderful ambassador for his species as well. And again, you don't feed the animals. Well, <laughs> I mean, I mean you don't. it's not a public display. Of- no, but they, they do provide um, an alligator feeding in season where an, uh, one of our animal keepers gets into the enclosure and does some education. And it's one of our most popular public tours. So you can learn a little bit about what they eat and about 
the large alligators of our region that are so intriguing, especially for people who are coming from out of South Carolina. 250 years ago, when those rice fields were developed, the alligators were there. The human beings that were creating the rice dikes and the rice fields were in territory of the alligators and the snakes, but particularly yes. the alligators. You know, there used to be a joke of, oh, I'm up to my such and such in alligators. Well, <laughs> if you were building rice dikes in the low country of South Carolina, that was not a joke. Yeah, it's one of the things that we interpret on our boat trip. We have interpreters that provide information about in the rice field while we're being able to also interpret wildlife. So it's a really immersive experience um, as well as an educational one about the history of the rice culture. During when the time of the cypress swamps, it would take uh, seven years to transform a cypress swamp into a rice field. and The enslaved Africans were the ones responsible for that labor being out um, in the waterways among the alligators, the poisonous snakes, stinging flies, etc. And that huge earthen dike was not built with a bulldozer. It was all Absolutely not. it was all hand labor. Um, and Ron, you might talk about the use of tidal flows and the rice trunks, which again are a West African heritage. Brook Green Gardens being in Georgetown County is a community where there's a convergence of five major rivers. And those rivers, several of them flow into Winya Bay. Those rivers that flow into Winya Bay, connected to the Atlantic Ocean, whenever there would be a high tide, the, the, the tides would push back into those uh, rivers, creeks, and waterways. The push of the salt water with the high tides would push the fresh water back, and that's how uh, these uh, rice plantations were able to flood uh, the rice fields. And rice only grows in fresh water. So that utilizing that push from the salt water, that's one of the reasons why uh, rice production was so lucrative in the Carolina colony and during the 17th, the 1800s, half of this country's rice was produced in the 45,000 acres of rice fields in uh, Georgetown County, of which four of those plantations are the ones on which Brooklyn Gardens is established. In, in terms of the enslaved population, a form of work management, the task system Uniquely developed in the Low Country, but particularly in Georgetown County. Would you like to chat about that for a minute? With the task system, which was uh, different from the gang labor system, well, under the task system, those enslaved workers, if they were assigned a task each day, um, the old, the young, the male, and female were given a task, a job that had to be accomplished, uh, a task was generally the work that could be done in an acre or two of a rice field. Under the task system, if the work was finished before the end of the day, then the enslaved African could return to the slave village, or the village as it was called on Brook Green Plantation. And because of the task system, uh, that's why a lot of the cultural beliefs and practices of the Gullah Geechee people have been sustained. Um, uh, they could work their own gardens. They could look for, in the woods, uh, for different plants uh, for healing. They could fish, go out to the waterways to provide foods other than what had been rationed out by the plantation owners. That was very important, as I said, that a lot of the beliefs and practices have been sustained. On other plantations that did not use the task system, enslaved workers had to work from sunup until sundown, six days a week. And in South Carolina and elsewhere, that was generally on 
cotton plantations in Louisiana, it would have been sugarcane. But the rice culture in South Carolina, the low country, the task system was a preferred method of the owners dealing with the enslaved population. Um, yeah, and, and as Paige um, stated earlier, that's part of the interpretive program on the Creek Excursion boat ride. Paige, I'd like to take our listeners to Brook Green right now. And when you come into Brook Green, your experience, what is your first visual experience as you go through those gates? Uh, that's, it's one that we talk about a lot. It is a long oak alley that would have come from the beach all the way to the river. But as you're driving in, it's, a, it's part of our beautiful garden and horticulture display, but you're passing these live oaks and the Spanish moss, resurrection ferns, um, beautiful azaleas, of course, in season. The color is spectacular there. And then you're encountering ponds uh, and then sculpture. We talk about it as a staff, as volunteers, and and we hear from our guests, too, that every time you're passing an oak tree on that drive in, your cares and worries are disappearing. You're being transported into somewhere that's just a, you know, a uniquely beautiful uh, location and a, a sanctuary. And particularly, we found in COVID, people had a new appreciation for Brook Green as a place of peace and solace, a place to connect with nature when even the beaches were closed uh, for parts of that uh, uh, that early part of um, 2020. So they have a new appreciation, I think, for the the beauty and the connection to nature at Brook Green. So you were able to keep Brook Green or portions of the whole garden or just portions of it? Everything but the indoor spaces. All of the outdoor spaces were open and we had amazing usage at that time from people in the area, including, you know, Brook Groups would meet and set up chairs outside, knitting circles, um, people who, you know, were used to meeting indoors and they still wanted to be able to safely gather. And we were so excited to be able to provide that space. It's a beautiful space, the alley. And that was what I was thinking about because those towering oaks uh, are a treasure. Uh, now, our previous director, Gordon Tarbox, he started there when the Huntingtons were there, right? Frank. Tarbox, okay. I believe, is his uncle. Oh. He was the first oh, okay. uh, official director and horticulturist okay. and worked with the Huntingtons. Yeah, uh, And he was afraid those oak trees, they do have a natural life, that they were going to go away. So he created another alley. Yes, there is an alley of magnolias, uh, which is a, a beautiful walk. You know, the, the trails throughout the garden, um, you can spend as you know, more than a day just walking to be able to get down along where the rice stacks are behind the, the wall we call the historic part of the garden through the arboretum where the Magnolia Alley is um, along the zoo trail and throughout the animal exhibits. And of course, we mentioned the, the really beautiful boardwalk with the elevated trail for the local of the Low Country Trail. There are many ways to experience the garden uh, walking. We have people who who bicycle in from Huntington State Park and they have access to all of the roads. So uh, there are incredible, you know, physical benefits to coming to the garden as well. <laughs> well, Miss Huntington's butterfly design, in garden terms, she she created rooms. They each have a name. They are part of the whole, but they're separate. Yeah, so if you picture a butterfly in your mind, you have upper left wing, an upper right wing, a lower left, lower right. That's how we talk about the areas of the garden. The center of the garden is that Live Oak LA. And our horticulturists and gardeners, um, this incredible team of volunteers that helps us uh, with the maintenance as well, they are assigned a particular area so they can uh, create a design that 
best displays, uh, the sculpture that's unique to that area, the foundation plantings that are there. Um, so each room, as you said, is a very different experience. A great example is the Palmetto Garden, which, of course, uh, the focus of that is our state tree. Mm-hmm. And that gives alleys of the Palmetto. And it gives it a much more tropical feel. Um, the sculpture there and the design of the garden is more Mediterranean. Well, and I was thinking particularly about, I was fascinated by the poetry garden. Yes. So being a poet himself, and you'll find when you see the the monument to our founders, the visionaries, which is one of the sculptures, just as you enter, the back of that monument has one of Archer Huntington's poems about Brook Green Gardens. But he was fascinated with poetry. He helped support uh, what would become the Poet Laureate in America. He selected certain verses that were important to him, and those are in plaques around in the po- all throughout the garden, but a, a high concentration in the poetry garden, which has a beautiful look over the rice fields mm-hmm. as well. So a, a great place to reflect on art, nature, literature, bringing all of those things together. Ron and Paige, we need to pause for a moment and let our listeners know that this is Walter Edgar's Journal, and I'm talking with Paige Kennery and Ron Days about Brook Green Gardens. Now, Paige, you mentioned the thousands of sculptures you have. Yes. This is the low country of South Carolina. It's hot. It's humid. Things drop out of the sky. I know some of these are sandstone sculptures, some are marble, both of which are relatively soft. So how do you protect these things? Well, we have a sculpture conservation program, and that is led by a conservationist who comes to us on a rotation, and we have in staff um, also expertise in sculpture conservation, particularly in bronze. A, A significant portion of that is in bronze, and We are very excited that one of our newest initiatives, we're building a brand new studio um, that will accommodate more and different classes, but it will also have a a small foundry where people can witness that sculpture process, be able to watch a bronze pour, the lost wax process, which Mm -hmm. is a really fascinating way of how the majority of bronze sculpture is made. So that's going to be a whole new depth of understanding of the sculpture that's on display for our guests. And then, of course, an incredible resource for the sculptors who come and utilize that space. Part of that will include a conservation lab. So it will be our first conservation lab on property. And we're so proud of that because the sculpture is now getting on 100 years old and needs conservation work. And in the past, we've had to send that away or do that in areas that were not as appropriate for conservation purposes. So that will have a fume hood. It will provide a, you know, environmentally appropriate place for us to do that conservation work going forward and ensure that these amazing artwork is going to be there in perpetuity. Now, some of those things are really large pieces. Don't you put some kind of protecting covering on those? Yes, they they get patinated, so they're uh, they they often need repatination. There's one you had mentioned. Um, there are some that are gilded. They have to be regilded. So that work is unlikely to be able to occur in our laboratory. We'll still have mm. to send sculptures out that are large pieces. But we have a daily sculpture maintenance program. And some of that, as you mentioned, just includes um, cleaning, which we do with very mild soap. And we make sure that you know some of that debris that you were talking about, particularly tree sap, Mm-hmm. Um, bird droppings, those mm-hmm. things are cleaned daily at Brook Green. It's a big well, job. Well, we jumped right into Brook Green Gardens, and I didn't pose the question of Paige Kenry, who are you and where did you come from? Tell us about yourself. Well, thank you. I'm, this is the, the dream job of a lifetime. I feel like everything I've done to this point has led me here. It's um, I was working at a uh, Virginia Living Museum, which is an institution that is an aquarium, a zoo, a botanical garden, all about Virginia. So that focus on a place, um, a biome, um, was a very important part of why I stayed there for 11 years as director. 
Um, it was also on a Huntington property. Now, the Huntingtons did not create the museum. It was actually a community project. But that that history is a, a big part of Newport News, where Newport News Shipbuilding was. And Collis Huntington, of course, founded that and the railroad that connected that with the rest of the world. Um, the Mariners Museum is another sister museum that's on the adjoining property. So I, I was very involved in who the Huntingtons were and how they were connected to both my institution and the region. And um, I was looking for a sculpture. Um, It was our 50th anniversary. It had been promised to us by the Huntingtons in a letter. And our original founder found the letter and said, we need to find the sculpture. So the first place I called was Brookring Gardens. And I had never been. And I had no idea of the, the massive nature of the institution itself and the art collection. But the director at that time helped me, and then we began a relationship. And when he decided to retire, I was happy to put my name in the hat for this amazing job and moved from Virginia. All right. But where did you grow up? (laughs) I grew up in Annapolis, Maryland, and I went to the College of William & Mary and then to the University of Richmond in a a master's program that was focused on museum studies. Okay. And... Ron, let's have a little bit of bio-information on you. Oh, I am a son of St. Helena Island, South Carolina, which is in Beaufort County. I am a writer, a performing artist. I've authored several books. My first one was Reminiscences of Sea Island Heritage. And uh, following the publication of that book, my wife and I scripted a program doing dramatizations of the oral histories presented in the book the songs uh, presented in the book. And a few years after that, we became stars, con- cultural consultants for Nick Jr.'s uh, Gullah Gullah Island TV program. Which after- my kids loved. <laughs> Thank you. And um, when that was over, I was an educator working in schools of Beaufort County, South Carolina. Um, my wife and I were invited in 2002 to come to Brook Green Gardens because there was a dedication service for the Wall Low Country Center complex. I had been aware of Brook Green Gardens because there would be bus rides during the summer by many community churches, not only in Beaufort but across South Carolina to visit Myrtle Beach. And during that time, there would be stops at Brook Green Gardens. So I have this vague recollection of stopping to this place where there were these sculptures, and it was a beautiful place. And that's what I found upon my return when my wife and I did that dedication service. This building was done after the Brook Green Board of Trustees had determined that history would become a part of its mission. And um, two years following that, that's when I came on board as vice president for creative education. And aren't we lucky? Yes. yes. (laughs) What an amazing resource. Yes, you are lucky. If you have never been to one of Ron's programs who need to come, and and when you do, you know he has an incredible singing voice. And I will just tell you that we also get to the benefit of that when we do our Christmas carols for our staff meetings. Um, we have the most incredible leader of those songs <laughs> in those other duties as assigned, right? <laughs> well, in terms of Gullah Geechee culture, what about Sandy Island? Oh, we have some exciting things happening at Sanding Island right now. Um, We're doing a renovation of the schoolhouse, which was one of the original structures uh, built by the Huntingtons. And it just received a civil rights designation because of the voter education that took place at that facility throughout its contemporary history. And it's being renovated as a community center for the, the people who are on the island. And that's a partnership with Coastal Carolina University that we're most proud of. Well, I just remember uh, one of your former board chairs, John Rainey, that Sandy Island was one of his pet projects. Um, And we might let people know that that is an attempt to preserve Gullah 
Geechee culture in situ. It is, it is ongoing, Ron, correct? That is correct. And uh, it's important to note that Sandy Island, which is located right near Brook Green Gardens across the Waccamaw River, is one of three Gullah Geechee communities that remains accessible only by boat. There's the Fusky Island, uh, located near Beaufort, the city of Hilton Head, and um, Savannah, Georgia. There's Sapelo Island in Georgia, and there's Sandy Island. The preservation of Gullah Geechee culture, particularly continuing communities like Sandy Island and Sapelo Island, that's not easy because what about the young generation that grows up? They leave the island, the influence of television and social media on even how they speak. Yes, and that's one of the uh, things of importance about the interpretive programming done at Brooklyn Gardens and elsewhere because there is a renewed understanding of the importance of heritage and whereas during my childhood, many did not wish to identify as Gullah or Geechee, or as it's now referred to as Gullah Geechee. The people are realizing the significance of heritage, and although they may go to the mainland, they realize and have a greater understanding of the significance of the culture in, that they live from day to day as on Sandy Island, a community where there are no night lights out among the homes, where cars are left at the Sandy Island boat dock on the mainland, and they walk in their communities barefoot and realize that there's a importance to it and that some of the information passed on, and I do a weekly Gullah Geechee program here at Brooklyn Gardens, and the exhibits also give those a look at it that Gullah Geechee culture is contemporary, not from some 300 years ago. And connected, too. I think Ron organizes a Gullah Geechee Junkanoo which was a word I didn't know. Um, <laughs> that was a Caribbean celebration, but it is a celebration of heritage that connects many of the people here with those Caribbean cultures, too. But that is a, a really fun event. Okay. Paige, looking for the next five years, where do you see Brook Green going? What are you going to add? What, are, what plans have you got? Oh, thank you for the softball. That is, um, if we only have five minutes, I, I might need some extra time. Now, um, Brook Green has now, you know, more than 350,000 visitors each year from all over the world. And people are experiencing not only, you know, the sculpture garden, but all of our missions, the history. It's a place of multi-generations. And our focus for our future, we've been calling the campaign, the plan for the next generation which is how are people in these multi-generational family units coming and experiencing Brook Green. Some of that is an introduction in the zoo. So we've been adding the animals. I mentioned there's a beautiful new zoo entrance, improving our heritage animal presentations, um, the red wolf exhibit. And then we're going to be um, opening a nature center in the zoo. It was originally part of our zoo and where we do a lot of the school programs, homeschooling and scout programs, uh, daily demonstrations. So that's going to make, especially for our young visitors that are often introduced to Brook Green through that, those animal programs, you know, a wonderful welcoming area. Then the new studio that I mentioned, we'll break ground on that this fall and we'll be able to offer daily uh, demonstrations and programs in addition to our week-long programs about creating sculpture of all kinds, all media, and programs for all ages. And Ron, I know that yeah. you're always brimming over with ideas, so what, what are some of the things you're cooking up for the future? Um, well, uh, continuing with the Rain of Rice uh, lecture series, uh, the Gullah Geechee Junkanoo, this year at Brooklyn Gardens, we began the Huntington, um, Paige helped me out for as part of Juneteenth celebration, the Huntington Exemplary Service, Award. Service mm -hmm. Award, for which we recognize um, community-wide recognition of individuals 
of Georgetown and Horry County who have improved race relations um, within the past year. And Ron also is developing some programs. We are, we're building a new conservatory, which will be a center for the garden that connects some of the areas that are a dead end, where the if you're familiar with the Fountain of the Muses, there's a separation between our entrance and that area, and there's always been a building planned there. And now after 30 years from our original master plan, we're actually able to complete the construction. So that's another project that's breaking ground early next year. And that's going to provide education space, um, event space, and additional walkways, and a focus on environmental education in a wetland garden. We'll have a butterfly exhibit that will be year-round. So one of the things about our current butterfly exhibit is Ron has not been able to get as many school groups there to do some of our science programming because it's only offered seasonally, and usually that's the summer season. Well, that's, um, that's when the monarchs are coming through. Right. So this is a, an opportunity for us to have uh, tropical plants and talk about how those plants relate to the plants that are native to our area, as well as butterflies from around the world and comparing those to our native butterflies and having that as a space that's year-round. Well, I hate to tell you folks, but Alfred's giving me the wind-up sign. Paige Kennery and Ron Days, I want to thank you both for being with us today on The Journal. This is Walter Edgar, and I hope you enjoyed today's journal. I know that I did. Like many of you, I visited Brook Green Gardens back in the 1960s. The last time was about five or six years ago. Wow. From the original purpose, the original garden, to its mission today, particularly with regard to history and culture and education, it's quite a change. It's a beautiful South Carolina experience and how that garden developed and the gift that was made to the people of South Carolina by the Huntingtons is quite a treasure. This is Walter Edgar. Join me next week for more of The Journal. Walter Edgar's Journal is a production of South Carolina Public Radio. The producer and engineer is Alfred Turner. Production of this program is made possible in part by listener contributions to the ETB Endowment of South Carolina. The views and opinions expressed on Walter Edgar's Journal are not necessarily those of South Carolina Public Radio.